Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Professor Peter Dean, Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. They discuss developments in Australia's defense planning. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, joined by my partner in Asianology and Pekingology, Jude Blanchett, and uh, joined today by Professor Peter Dean, a colleague now at the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney, the principal drafter, it is well known, of Australia's recent and historically very significant defense strategic review and a general observer of geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific region. Pete, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Mike. So we usually start off asking how you got here. This is your opportunity to tell us about any unresolved criminal charges or anything else you'd like. But (laughs) obviously, the pinnacle of your career is working with me at the U.S. Studies Center. But there were probably some things you did before that. And I have a feeling you didn't start out in life expecting to be a defense and history guru. So how did you get into this business? Well, certainly, Mike, the highlight of my career is working with you and will remain working with you, boss, and, you know, staying employed, basically. But in terms of how I got here, look, when I grew up as a kid, I I honestly thought my career would be in uniform in the military. My sister went to the Australian Defence Force Academy as a Navy officer. I thought that I would probably follow her path as an Army officer. I ended up, though, basically not getting the marks I needed to go to that university. So I went off to university and joined what you in the United States would refer to as the National Guard. And I thought I'd do a little bit of time in that while I studied at university and probably go to the military full time. And it ended up taking a little bit of a different career path. I ended up serving for about 13 years in the Army in that capacity with some full-time service thrown in. But I ended up working for the state public service, doing some work as a, as a school teacher and a curriculum officer in the Department of Education, did my PhD, which was my other real passion. When I got to university and realised how much I love studying US history and strategy and military history and politics and international relations, I really decided that what I wanted to do long term was my PhD and I, I did the, got the opportunity to do that after I did some time in the public service and then very lucky enough to get a job at a university, at the University of Notre Dame, Australia, a Catholic university here in Sydney, where I spent the first part of my career basically being a university leader and administrator, a head of school, a dean. And then I went off to ANU, the Australian National University, where I worked at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre, which is the oldest strategic studies centre in the Southern Hemisphere. And I spent eight years there working also at the Australian Command and Staff College. I did more and more research into these areas, working more and more on Australian defence policy and regional security. Then I went over to Perth, and over there I spent some time with Tim Beasley, who I'm sure you know well, the former Australian Labor Party leader, Minister for Defence, and of course Ambassador to the United States. But significantly over there I worked very closely with now his title, I think his Professor, the Honourable His Excellency Stephen Smith, the former Foreign and Defence Minister and currently High Commissioner to the United Kingdom for Australia. And we set up a Defence and Security Institute at the University of Western Australia to look at the region, um, to look at the Indian Ocean, to look at Australian defence policy from that WA perspective. I then came and worked for you, Mike, after an interesting conversation at a baggage carousel in Canberra Airport. <laughs> you offered me a job. How are you all my recruiting? How you do all your recruiting? And on my very first day working for Michael Green at the United States Studies Centre, I got a phone call from Secretary of Defence, Greg Moriarty, saying that the government had decided to set up a defence strategic review that Stephen Smith and Sarangus Houston, who former Chief of Defence Force, who I knew very well too, and that they were asking me to come and work for them as co-lead of their secretariat, along with uh, Gabby Burrell, who was in defence at the time, and particularly my job to provide, be a strategic advisor to them and, and help them draft the document and pull the document together. So a bit of a circular route, but I think it's a classic case of you've got to know the right things, you've got to worked in the right places, but you also got to know the right people. And you know, if, if Stephen Smith and Serangus hadn't been chosen to do the review, probably would have been somebody else in my position, but I had a good relationship with both of them. I had a good relationship with Richard Miles, who's the Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister, and some other key people who were involved in this. So, and it was a very great privilege and probably the other great highlight, Mike, of my career. There you go. I, I, other I, I than know. working for you. So well, I want to get into the Defence Strategic Review, what it recommends for Australian defence, what it says about the geopolitics of the region. But first, I got to ask, you've been a corporal in the Royal Australian Regiment. 
and you've been an academic administrator in universities, which made you feel more powerless? Definitely a dean in a university system. I, I thought uh, so. Like, and, and, yeah. And what was what was your military? What was your MOS in the in the army? What, I, I was an infantry corps guy, an ECN three four three bar one, Royal Australian Infantry Corps. So the books Pete has written for those of you who haven't seen them, nine by my count so far are mostly histories of the Australian defence forces or military throughout the twentieth and twenty first centuries geopolitics and so forth. Most recent one on MacArthur's management of the New Guinea and Kokoda campaign on the one hand, and then Guadalcanal on the other. We're taking a group of students there next year. It should be interesting. But what really makes Pete's books interesting is it marries the geopolitics with the perspective of a corporal on the ground. In the <laughs> it gets the high and low of security. So uh, DSR, Defense Strategic Review, people, commentators in the media have said this is the most significant shift in Australian thinking since the 1980s DIB review that, that, that our friend Kim Beasley commissioned at the height of the Cold War, the sort of new Cold War of the 80s. Some people have said it's the most significant shift since Prime Minister Curtin in 1942 gave his famous interview about shifting to America after uh, the Japanese onslaught in the Pacific. By either measurement, it's a big, big change. A lot to explain, but... Bottom line, what is in there people need to, to know about? Look, I, I think it's two reasons why it's significant that you say too. It's easy to say it's the most significant since the DIB review because it's the only external review of our Department of Defence and Strategy since the DIB review. It was the last, DIB review was the last, last one. Um, but as Paul, and Paul Dib is a, is a close friend and a mentor of mine I've known for a very, very long time. And Paul's on the public record during the review process of saying the fundamental difference between the review he did in 1986 and the review we did that finished at the early this year was that the strategic situation was fundamentally different. I mean, Paul was looking at Australia in 1986 where there was no real direct threat to Australian security. The US was the hegemon in the region where Australia was geographically situated was a long way from the centre of gravity of the Cold War, particularly in Europe. So it was a very different set of circumstances and the strategic outlook that he was looking at was how would Australia be able to independently defend itself without the aid of combat forces from the United States against a low-level or escalated low-level threat to Australia and in particular to like low-level raids against the Australian continent or low-level operations in the immediate region of the South Pacific or Southeast Asia. Fast forward to now and the reason we get these comparisons with Curtin or the Second World War and former Prime Minister Scott Morrison was very fond of saying that the strategic circumstances are in uh, the first time we've faced these types of circumstances since the 1930s. And the reason is because great power strategic competition has come back to our region. As the DSR says, that the United States is no longer the, the unipolar leader of, of that region. It's no longer the hegemon. And we're in a genuine contest of power in the Indo-Pacific. And this means that in 2020, the Australian Defence Strategic Update that was released under the former government ended 10 years of warning time for defence policy and planning, and that was a significant move. The new government came into power in 2022 and it felt that they agreed with that assessment from 2020, but they basically viewed that not a lot had been done, but defence was still operating in its similar parameters, and that therefore they needed to bring some internal, external people in to do an independent review, and the review... This is a review document. It's not a defence white paper. It's not a national security strategy or national defence strategy. It's an independent strategic review that made 108 recommendations to government about changing it based on that changing circumstances and what that means. So at the big top-level figure, we've moved from low-level threats now to the risk of major war and strategic competition being the focus. And that, you know, and the end of warning time. Anyone who's a strategic studies professional knows that that fundamentally changes the way you have to do things. On capability development area, it talks about completely reorientating the way we do capability development to get speed to capability, to move away from what has been, you know, that almost serves for the perfect capability solution to, you know, don't let the enemy, uh, don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good type of approach. It also talks about moving. Australia used to have a, what it called a broad-based regional military security edge, where it could get overmatched technologically, planning, operations and everything over any potential regional adversary at that low-level conflict area. Now we're dealing with a major power adversary. So as a result, we don't have that anymore. So we're looking now at asymmetric capability edges. And this is where, for instance, AUKUS comes in. 
you know, nuclear-powered submarines to give us an underwater technological capability edge over the long term, and AUKUS Pillar 2 to give us more faster, quicker over the next 10 years, asymmetric capability edges in things like hypersonics and cybersecurity, artificial intelligence and those other areas as well. So this means a, a really big reorientation, a big focus on long-range strike, a big focus on um, basically uh, Australia really getting involved in the, in the missile age, as the, the document refers. So it's about getting greater, longer-range, more firepower for the Army, Navy and Air Force, moving from a very broad-based defence force that's basically what we call a balance force, which is designed to meet, well, there could be a range of things that happen in our international security situation, so it could be able to respond to those. So then moving to a, a net assessment approach to planning based on that high-end strategic threat and that the defence force must be focused on that, moving to a focused force and moving to an integrated force where now not three services but five domains, including cyber and space, are integrated into that force and very, very focused on that. And that's reflective of the broader strategy which is about the balance of power in the region, about a national balancing strategy for Australia, and then bringing it down to the defence component about deterrence, deterrence through denial, a denial strategy, and looking at those long-range strike options to basically hold any potential adversary at risk in Australia's normal approaches to look at asymmetric sort of cost imposition from a, from a hard power point of view. Pete, I wanted to ask a question about China, but first I wonder if I can ask in the document, either implicitly or explicitly, what are the projections or assumptions about both the extent and persistence of U.S. power in the region over time? You mentioned the end of U.S. hegemony. I'm curious, how far down the hegemony scale are you expecting the U.S. to be? And again, in a minute, I'll ask where, where China fits into this, but curious where you see the U.S. over time. The document's very direct on this. So it talks about Australia's strategic culture, and this is a really important part about Australia, where we're a very large island continent at the bottom of Asia on the hinge of the Indo-Pacific. We're a very small population. You know, we've got about, I think it's 0.33% of the global population on an island continent the size of the continent of the United States in the world's most dynamic region. We've always, based on our history and our culture and that geography, had a long-term relationship with a great and powerful friend, preferably, you know, an Anglo-Saxon maritime power or a maritime power in general that has dominance in Asia or the Indo-Pacific. First of all, it was Great Britain and then the United States. And that strategic culture of a great and powerful friend will persist. And the document says very much there's been a, a long, ongoing debate about your question, Jude, in Australia. So on, on one level where you get people talking about, you know, the, the not relative decline in the United States but the absolute decline of the United States. Other people talking about the need to become, you know, armed and independent or to adopt a completely different type of approach to strategic outcomes. And the document points to there's this public analysis. But what it says is the United States is actually, as a result of this changing power dynamic, going to become more important to Australia. And that we actually have to, as a country, work more closely with the United States but also with other partners. So this is a document very much focused on allies and partners and the balance of power. It's about working more closely with Japan. It's about working more closely with India. It's about working more closely with Australia's partners in Southeast Asia to maintain that strategic balance. And improving Australia's ability to do its own self-reliant defence so we are able to contribute to regional security and that balance of power and we're able to work with the United States and others so it sees, I suppose, the United States as, as the cornerstone balancing power in the region of critical importance ongoing to the future of the Indo-Pacific region, of an absolutely central state, but one that has less power than it had before, and that in line, I think, with the US you know, strategy of integrated deterrence, which is about empowering allies and partners, I think it very much aligns with that particular strategic approach in the region. And we've seen also what you know, Japan has been doing in terms of increasing defence spending, also going for long-range counter-strike options and those types of things. So I think it's very consistent with US strategy in the region and, and I think very consistent with the changing understanding of the region's view of the United States, but also the United States' view of its own role in the region. Now, like all good analysts, instead of reading the whole report, I just did a word search for China and uh, we'll make approximations about the entire thing based on how many references it gets. And I count, just, just for the record, I count nine of them in the 116-page document. I haven't I, counted, so. 
I'm curious, obviously China and concerns about China are, are explicitly made and then implicitly all throughout the document. Um, yes. I would imagine if we were to reverse engineer a lot of the recommendations that you're offering, many of these are about thinking about Australia's capability to both deter, but also be, be able to fight and win in a potential conflict. I wonder for listeners who, who haven't had a chance to, or, or at some point will in the future, can you prioritize what are the sort of two or three areas where China's current or future capabilities you think most stress Australia's current defense capabilities? Look, yeah, look, so China is an important factor in the document. And we've seen that the, the document talks about the deteriorating strategic environment. It, it talks about strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific being the defining feature of our age and our time. And it really focuses on great power competition, the rise of China, and in particular China's behaviour in the last decade or so. It's military modernisation that's happening without transparency and happening at a rapid rate. The, the way that they're approaching coercive uses of power in the region, as, as we all know, Australia has been you know, under coercive economic power, um, economic trade sanctions um, against Australia from China for, for a significant period of time. So it's that sort of sits at the centrepiece of the document. I think the other key thing about the document is it puts statecraft really at the front and centre and it talks about defence can't do this alone. It needs to be much more of a whole-of-government, whole-of-nation effort. And I think one of the things I would also point to your listeners to do is that our Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, gave a speech one week before the release of the Defence Strategic Review. That's on the 17th of April at the Press Club in Canberra in Australia. And that was really, in my view, the first DSR speech. People didn't kind of realise because the DSR hadn't been out. But she uses a lot of language from the DSR and she really crafts out, I think, almost a grand strategic approach kind of for Australia, the, the best articulation I've heard for a very long time. And one of the things she talks about in that speech is the need for what we want to avoid as a state. And she talks, the speech actually has the balance of power in the region in the title of the speech and Australia's, Australia's strategic interests. She talks about the type of regional order we don't want to have happen. That is, we don't want a hierarchical order. We don't want another power who is the hegemon in the region that can impose a hierarchical order and that will move sovereignty and agency and basically remove the notion of a free and open Indo-Pacific or a free and secure and prosperous Indo-Pacific. And it's very clear from her speech, the, the country of concern in relation to that is China. So the difference, though, I think that this government's trying to do, say, from the last government is to be more subtle, like direct, but more subtle in its, in its, in its language and more, more artful in its statecraft. So China doesn't appear as much in the DSR document and as much in this, but it's very clear that's, the, that's some of the significant concerns. I think one of the other significant concerns, the document talks about the rise of the missile age, the geography, which has been such an important um, factor for Australia in its defence and security is still an asset, but also problematic as we've seen a rise in the capabilities of long-range strike from other countries, particularly China, for instance, and they're pushing down into the South China Sea, which has, you know, Lowy did a really interesting report a year or so ago where it had a, an interesting map about Chinese capabilities and made it really clear that the Chinese capabilities operating out of the bottom of these artificial islands in the South China Sea have the ability to strike the Australian mainland now. And that's a significant change for the Australian strategic community. So long-range strike is, is really is key, but also particularly the rise of Chinese naval capabilities in the Indo-Pacific. You know, the massive expansion they've had of their undersea warfare capabilities. People have an interesting regional response to our acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines under AUKUS, but we're looking at building sort of, you know, eight or so of, of these, these boats where... Over the same period of time, China's predicted to have somewhere in the realm of, I think, 72 submarines in its fleet. And it's built, you know, I think it's something like 12 nuclear-powered submarines over the last decade, many of them nuclear-armed as well. So I think that maritime capabilities from China and the long-range strike capabilities are two of the really key factors that are changing the shape and the dynamic, not just for Australia, but the region writ large in terms of the military balance and the strategic balance. So I want to spend some time at the end. Jude can lead us off on the Taiwan scenario, what it looks like. I think that's really the crux of the debate is what people think that means for Australia. But let's talk a little bit about implementing the DSR. The DSR was pretty well received. I was impressed. There was a sort of thunderous silence when it came out because I think people read it and found it pretty compelling. 
<laughs> and hard to argue with, but daunting. And then the criticism really has come around implementation uh, as much as anything. And there are two. The first one I want to ask you about is culture. So your earlier comment about the role of the Australian Defence Forces made me think of other major cultural transformations for militaries. So, for example, you think of the British Army preparing for World War I, essentially an expeditionary army, preparing for major war with a major power in their near abroad. Kind of similar. It didn't go well <laughs> for the BEF in the early days of World War I. It was a tough transition. You think of somewhat successful examples in the, in the transition from expeditionary to major war, and I think of the Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps in the 20s, 30s, and 40s with Pete Ellis and Lejeune innovating Absolutely. amphibious operations. And, and in a way, I think that's what Commandant Pete Berger is trying to do today with the Marine Corps. So bottom line is it doesn't always go well, <laughs> these cultural transformations. <laughs> yes. And I've been to Russell, you know, the Pentagon of Australia, and you see a lot of guys in slouched hats with infantry badges or naval officers with surface warfare badges or uh, RAF officers with pilot's badges. Not, In other words, not the asymmetrical parts of those services. And the DSR really emphasizes the asymmetrical stuff, missiles, submarines. So what are the prospects? I guess you could say, look, the ADF is smaller than the Marine Corps. So the historical precedent says, yeah, it's doable. But what do you think? How do you transform a culture that has such a strong 100 plus year tradition of you know, heavy expeditionary uh, experiences? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. I think, um, and I was only discussing this at the Senior Australian Staff College yesterday, that the, the production of this document, which was a, a massive undertaking, is actually the easy part when you really think about it because the cultural transformation, the policy transformation and the, the physical transformation of the force is the great challenge, but also within the Department of Defence, as you said, within the, the Australian Public Service, the defence officials, the way of doing business. And the, the document talks very much about not just the need for a whole of government effect, this is a whole of nation effect. Because we're moving to this high-level threat now. That's something we haven't seen for a very, very long time. The document talks, the document is called National Defence. And it and it defines a key list of things that has to happen for national defence and the key things for national resilience that needs to occur. So this has to be an integrated approach between the Commonwealth government, between the states and the territories in some key areas as well. So there's there's not just a defence cultural change that needs to happen. There is a cultural change amongst the broader public service in Australia. So we could the defence could do all the reforms the document calls for internally, but if that is not accepted and understood by our Prime Minister and Cabinet Department, by our Treasury and our Finance Department, by our Audit Office, by our Senate Oversight Committees and others, that, that could really hamstring the process as well. Coming down to the military transformation part, in the, in the initial term, probably one of the big areas of transformation is in the Army. The Army is being given long-range land-based fires for the first time. It's going to go from having an effective combat engagement range at the range of a 155mm self-propelled howitzer out to a HIMARS initially and over the longer term through its PRISM development pathway we're on with the United States and for other capabilities, hopefully out to the ranges of about 1,500 nautical miles. What's also been underestimated for Army is the role it will play in integrated air and missile defence, and that's something, integrated air and missile defence, that we haven't had to do since the Second World War when we were doing it with Boffers guns and 3.7-inch millimetre anti-aircraft guns. Now, you know, we're looking at an Air 6500 integrated air and missile defence capability system that integrates air warfare destroyers, frigates, land-based systems, as well as Air Force, and that's a significant move to high-end capabilities that we've had to not worry about, you know, for decades and decades and decades. So there's going to be big cultural shifts. The Army also needs to adapt to being more Marine Corps-like. I, I like to say a maritime army. The key defining feature for this, it talks about Australia and the ADF needing to operate in its immediate region. That region um, is defined from the Northeast Indian Ocean down through maritime Southeast Asia and into the South Pacific. And if you just look at a map, these are the world's largest archipelagic states. The, we are, the north of Australia, um, wherever direction you go on that north, from the northwest through to the northeast, you run into intersecting littoral areas and, and large archipelagos. So the army needs to be able to operate in that archipelagic space. Um, it needs to be able to use the ocean as a space of manoeuvre. It's done this in the past. It did this in the Pacific War. It's done this at various times when it operated in East Timor in 1999 and others. 
but it has spent a good couple of decades operating in the Middle East in a very different environment. And it's going to have to shift both its mindset, its doctrine, and also the capabilities it now has to integrate. But I will say there was really strong engagement from the service chiefs to this. It was exceptionally strong support from the Chief of Defence Force and from the Secretary of Defence who really want to use this document as a forcing function for change because they all get and fundamentally agree with the very different strategic circumstances that we face. Therefore, that has to lead to very different outcomes from the way that they do business and the, the shape and structure of the Defence Force as well. So I think everyone's up for the challenge. But I remember when the, when the DSU came out, I wrote a, a piece on the, the Defence Strategic Update back in 2020 that said, look, this is fantastic. There's broad agreement with this. Everyone's on board with this ending of warning time. But culture eats strategy for breakfast. The, the, the big change is going to have to come from the way that reward and recognition is done for military promotions and public service promotions. People, you know, warning time of 10 years and a particular way of doing business has been enculturated into the department and the ADF over a 40 to 50 to 60-year period. And we're asking for that to change. So that comes down to everything from changing the way you do promotion processes and the way you reward and recognise your staff. And, of course, workforce is, at, uh, is one of the centrepieces of this document. We know, like in the United States and in Japan and other countries, uh, the Defence Forces are struggling for recruits. In Australia, we have record low unemployment. You know, it's, I'm 49 years of age and the unemployment level hasn't been this low since before I was born. So we have to compete now in a marketplace for people and a workplace and culture has to reflect that. So the, the changes are enormous that are being asked to be done. But I think as a, as a country that we've got the political will and commitment from the Prime Minister down um, to do this. And I think that the senior, well, certainly the senior leadership we dealt with during the review were extraordinarily supportive and all bought into the need for significant change. So if it starts with leadership and that belief in what you're doing, I think, say, the Second World War, when we saw some big significant changes, it's because everyone recognised the need for that change. I think that recognition is now. It's about how the execution of that. I mean, there's an obvious inverse relationship between culture and spending and Senate estimates, the four-year projection for the budget, which I gather in the Australian system is pretty much locked in. That doesn't usually change a lot. It doesn't have big increases for defence. So this is, this is going to put more of a premium on change of culture. But for Americans listening to this, uh, I can tell you as an American living in Australia, at the top, as Pete says, the DPM, Defense Minister Richard Marles, um, Angus Campbell, the Chief of Defense Forces, Greg Murray, the Secretary, they're seized with this. You, you, you get a sense that this cultural change, frankly, more than you often get in the Pentagon, that this comes from the top. But it's big. It's a big change. Pete, I wanted to shift gears slightly and talk about what is also implicit in the document, or at least when we think about the prospect for major power war, which is the issue of Taiwan. It is difficult for us to gauge here in Washington, D.C., where and what the debates are on Taiwan in relevant and critical partners and allies in the region. So, so first question, just as a level set, can you give us an overview of, of where the thinking and discussion is on Taiwan scenarios what are the scenarios that are seen as most probable? And if I can lump a third question here, as we've seen with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, you not only have the issue of militarily, how do you respond, but the importance of the political discussion back home in capitals to sustain that stamina and fortitude to see these through to the end. So thoughts also on where the political discussion is. So Taiwan is an issue that is very front and central to the media and the political and other debates in Australia. Everyone knows it's one of the key critical flashpoints in the region. And I think there's a broad acceptance of the concern that people have over the risk of conflict over Taiwan. Certainly, I think we, we can see there was significant concern over what happened with Nancy Pelosi's visits and at various other iterations we've had recently. In the, in the press in Australia, every time there is a mention from a, a US official or another senior official from another allied or partnered country in the region about the prospect for war over Taiwan, it's on the front page of newspapers, it's on the front of you know media reports on television and on radio. And I think 
if you're any Australian senior defence official or certainly the foreign minister or the defence minister, you know every time you go and do an interview on television, on radio or in there is a 99.99999% probability that a journalist will ask you about Taiwan. And the stock standard response from every Australian senior leadership and politician is that we don't do hypotheticals. And Penny Wong, actually, in that speech I mentioned earlier, said that um, she doesn't see and the government doesn't see as productive about trying to have predictions over when a war in Taiwan may or may not start. But given their concerns, and I think we saw this in Anthony Albanese's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue, the real concern for Australia in relation to that is the lack of guardrails or the lack of a system to try and stop the escalation of, of conflict if miscalculation happens in the region as well. So it's a very seizing thing. We've had significant debate over the Taiwan issue here. There are, from those on one end of the extreme who say, well, Taiwan is Taiwan and if China seizes it, we should stay out of it. The Australian population, I think, is very mixed. If you look at opinion polls about whether or not Australia should support the United States if it intervened in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and that changes and moves around. But I think largely the big problem with those types of polls and also some of these questions from journalists is there is no context around this. So I think what would be absolutely central to any Taiwan scenario is who's the, the protagonist in this particular conflict how does it evolve? And I think the Australian public, if, if you look, and the Australian political class are, are very committed to a, a, an open, secure and prosperous region about, you know, the protection of sovereignty. Sovereignty is a key question, not just for us in Australia, but it's been central to the government's discussion of how it understands the region. And states being able to decide and entities being able to decide about their own future, free from coercion, free from intimidation and free from the threat of invasion is really central to the sort of broader strategic view that the Australian government has about the region. And if there was any attempt, I think, to unilaterally take back Taiwan by force from the Chinese government, I think it, you know, in many respects, it, it would be something that the Australian population and the Australian public and the Australian political class would be far more inclined to support the Taiwanese to protect their defence's interests. And if you look at some of the polling data where it particularly talks about would you support Taiwan, overwhelmingly the public wants to do that, yes, but ultimately, like any sane public, prefer to do that without the use of force and would prefer to do that in through all other means other than, you know, force. So it's a very complex and difficult question in Australia. It's a constantly ongoing debate. But I think context is absolutely key here to how any circumstance would, would evolve. And, and I have to be honest, you know, one of the things that worries some people in the Australian commentary and some public was, which is what direction would US domestic politics go in the future and what impact would that have, say, on the risk of conflict in, in the region. And there is a, a, a considerable fear from some elements of the population around entrapment um, by the US in conflicts with China in the region that some in Australia may or may not see as within Australian national interests. So that's the kind of polar of the debate. One of the dynamics that I see playing out, and Pete, correct me if I'm misdiagnosing this, but I think what's operating here from some in the US and some policymakers is, the, is a conception of deterrence whereby if we have more countries making more specific pronouncements on where they would align in a given conflict, and also increasingly trying to uh, push forward statements by countries on sanctions, that this will create a powerful deterrent to potential Chinese escalation. Am I right in sensing that that is something of a double-edged sword because it actually makes political discussions in the relevant capitals more difficult? It is. Um, I, I, this isn't the right way to phrase it, but to some extent, it over militarizes the Taiwan issue such that talking, discussing, having the mature discussions on Taiwan, to your last point on entrapment, seems to come with, with political risks. Am, am I describing this broadly correctly? Look, I think so. And I think it comes down to a little bit of, of different conceptions in some of the different capitals about how. Basically, the role in the region of the different states works 
and the different elements within our engagement with the region. So Australia has this sort of shape, deter, respond approach to its strategic objectives of looking at how it can proactively shape the region to be involved in deterrence, but also in, in the hope that benefit that we never slide into some type of escalation or some type of, of issue. I think sometimes, you know, the way Indo-PACOM um, likes to approach things or the US military approach things is, is slightly different. You know, they're, they're sort of, and they look at it from more of an, an access and basing option and more of a hard power option in that concept. So I think you're getting different perceptions of the way that that works. And I think this is fundamentally driven by the relative power imbalance, the asymmetric nature of our alliances, right? Australia doesn't have the ability, I think, to be as forward-leaning in some elements of its discussion of regional geopolitics because we're a middle power and we have a different way of engaging with states in the region than what a major power can do in relation to the United States or even a more significant power like Japan can because of its geography and the size of its economy and the size of, you know, its relative defence force. I think there's broad alignment between the allies and partners in the region. I think there's very mutually reinforcing broad alignment. I think we have, at times, different tactical approaches of how to get to the same strategic outcome, and I think that's where there is some difference in, in the approach. But I think I agree with your premise that Australia doesn't, you know, won't, you know, as I said, every politician in Australia gets the Taiwan hypothetical and they say we don't respond to hypotheticals. Now, a couple of them, David Johnson and Alexander Downer, has at times forgotten that and got themselves in huge hot water, not only with the Australian public, the media and the Prime Minister of the time, but also with our alliance partner, the United States, because that can, it just confuses everybody when that, because it's not a policy stance. So, you know, Australia has been very consistent in its approach to Taiwan from a diplomatic policy position and it's attempting to thread the needle using that very clear and consistent approach to policy. So it's preferring to do some things a little bit differently. So I think the key with the DSR, it comes down to, as I said, it's, it's about Australia being more self-reliant in its defence requirements against this particular threat, which we know is what... The United States, you know, integrated deterrence approach is doing. It's, a, it's also a sovereign decision that we want to do for ourselves. And we know Japan and others um, are going along the same pathway. But also our ability to have a more robust military and to be able to do more self-reliance means that we're actually more capable of contributing to that regional balance of power to help maintain peace and prosperity and security. And that strategic balance where, you know, I think where no one in the region can wake up in the morning and decide, particularly the major powers, and decide that, oh, well, we can solve this problem by the use of force because they believe that they've got, you know, a capability edge or superiority in this area. If they don't, then that's more likely to contribute, in my personal view, to a more stable-looking re region. But that requires not just to be about the United States and China in the region. It needs to be about the other states and their contribution to that. It needs to be about the role of Japan and Korea needs to be about the role of, of Australia and all states, you know, New Zealand and the Philippines and Singapore, Indonesia, and all this all contributing to that regional balance of peace and prosperity and security. I think the shape respond, a shape deter respond formula, which is very clear in the DSR, is pretty much lacking in the public debate, including the think tank debate in uh, Australia and often in the US about Taiwan. Everyone goes right <laughs> to respond. What would you do if? Yes. And the DSR is really powerful because it, it says, look, Australia may not be the size of the US or even Japan, but it can contribute to shaping the environment and to deterrence. And that doesn't come out in the Taiwan debate. So your homework assignment, Pete, when, when we're done, <laughs> is, to, is to get out there and start looking at the debate about shaping Taiwan scenarios. Because, you know, look, the US doesn't do hypotheticals either on Taiwan, at least not until Joe Biden started doing it. And he did it in part because he did it in part, I think, by design, because yes. of the menacing Chinese um, yes, definitely. Uh, power pressure. But the missing shaping piece for Australia, it seems to me, is the Taiwan piece. I think if you want to shape a, an environment uh, around Taiwan, you need to understand what's happening in Taipei, where the Taiwans are coming about, uh, coming from on things, or you just take the Americans' word for it. And if I were Canberra, I would not want to be in that position. I have been struck how little engagement, not official diplomatic relations, how little engagement there's of Taiwan. I would certainly want to know and make my own independent decisions about scenarios. 
and also be able to shape decision making. So that's just my little whinging uh, moment. Oh, no, I agree with you, Mark. I think there's too much of the debate in Australia about Taiwan that actually doesn't A, involve Taiwan or B, involve a better understanding of the Taiwan situation based on Australian analysis from our think tank community, from our academic community and from a broader general debate. I think the debate is a bit is far too narrow in Australia over Taiwan. And, and let's face it, the debate is generally about a proxy of would we fight a war with the United States in the Indo-Pacific? Now, it's yeah. a very reductionist conversation in Australia. It's not very nuanced. And in a sense, it's not really overly well informed by, as you said, a better appreciation of the region around Taiwan and the circumstances around Taiwan and I think it's a challenge for all of us in the think tank community, but also in the broader international relations academic community in Australia and the media to have a better, more nuanced, more detailed and sophisticated discussion on Taiwan. And as you said, get more, if it, if it's, you know, the forward leaning nature of Australia being involved in our region, the statecraft that we're talking about, if we really, really want to emphasise that statecraft, one of the best ways we need to do that is have independent, verifiable Australian views and perspectives on things, both from a government point of view, all the way through our community and our think tank um, point of view. If you go way back, I was actually only um, in Singapore recently talking to a, to a colleague who I did some work on in a book on Australian grand strategy from 1900 to 1954. One of the big things that came out for Australia at the end of the Second World War, or the beginning of the Second World War, I should say, and particularly during the 20s and 30s, is at the time we really didn't have a proper Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, we relied far too often on the British Foreign Office for information. And guess what? The British were telling us what they thought they wanted us to hear or what they wanted us to hear, not rather than what we really needed to know. And one of the key things in relation to that was with our um, with the United States of America. So one of the first you know, external affairs posts that Australia established was in the United States, um, particularly in relation to our relation with the United States in the Pacific during the 1930s and thereabouts. So it's really essentially important. I think one of the good budgetary things that we've seen from this government in the recent budget was the recommitment to funding and capability in our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to lead that statecraft effort. We've got a very effective foreign minister in Penny Wong. Um, she's not only a foreign minister, she's the leader of the Labor Party in the Senate. So she sits in sort of the top three of the hierarchy of Australian politicians with the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. And an extension of being able to really be active in the region and undertake that statecraft that the government has signed up to is to engage in the tough issues, right? Not just in the issues that we want to engage in, but the issues that we have to engage in in the tough issues. And that includes the Taiwan problem in question. And I 100% agree with you. It's about the shaping element and the deterrence element we need to focus on, far less so in the obsession in the media and others with the response question, because it's far too reductionist. So to be an equal opportunity winger, um, I also think the think tank debate in the U.S. is too much about deterrence and defense, and there's just not a lot of sophisticated thinking about shaping. And having said that, I'll now completely violate the principle I just introduced by talking about respond. <laughs> and I'll sort of end with that. <laughs> it is understandable people would focus on that. It's pretty existential, and it comes down to fundamental national interests. But what I wanted to say is, you know, the implication of zero warning time for an alliance is pretty profound. You think about other American alliances predicated on zero warning time, and you're talking U.S.-Korea alliance and NATO, which have jointly combined commands so that we can, as the U.S. versus Korea motto goes, fight tonight. The U.S.-Australia alliance is is in many ways much more integrated and intimate with five eyes and, and secondments senior military officials in, 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 in Indo-PACOM and, and so forth from Australia, then, you know, Japan, Korea, or NATO. But it's not designed to fight tonight in some ways. It's designed to have more warning time so that the Australian side can decide where it's going to plug and play in an Afghanistan or Iraq or other scenario. Zero warning time changes that. Senior uh, defense officials here, you know well, told me, look, those were alliances, NATO, Korea, formed in the ashes of war. We're building a relationship in peacetime. Don't expect the same thing, which seems right. And then you have the whole sovereignty complication. How do you see command and control and overall alliance management in terms of military operations evolving? Or are we basically going to jury rig based on what we've done for the last, you know, 70 plus years? That's a, fa- a fantastic question. And it's something that I've pondered for a very long period of time. You know, if 
if I specifically point out here that I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not talking from a DSR perspective or what's in the DSR point of view, or actually I'll caveat that with the DSR does talk about for the alliance with the United States to change and to evolve. Um, and I think that's really key. And it talks about the change will require a shift to, you know, increase United States rotational force posture in Australia, including the submarines with Surfwest. So, uh, and it will talk about increasing, it does, the DSR does talk about in, engagement with the United States on deterrence through joint exercises and patrols and moving in that direction. So if I just park now DSI to a side for a second and, and, and go back to the work that I've done personally. So I, I did an assessment of the Alliance back at the beginning of 2022 when I was in WA in a major policy paper. And one of the key things is that I argued there, there's sort of a nature and a character to the US-Australian Alliance. And the nature has largely been fixed and the character has changed at key pivot points in time. The difference with the most recent pivot point with AUKUS is that there's a change to the nature, as well, not just of the character, but to the nature of the relationship as well because of the shifting power dynamics in the region. We haven't had to have those things you've talked about in command and control, Mike, because we haven't been on the front line of things. But now we sit at the, you know, we've gone from the tyranny of distance to the power of proximity. Australia sits at the hinge of the Indo-Pacific, at the bottom of maritime Southeast Asia, at the bottom of that Southeast Asia maritime archipelago, and we are a sort of a southern anchor um, as Japan and Korea are the northern anchors into a US allies and partners network that's attempting to maintain peace and prosperity in the region. Up until now, we've had a very loose way of doing institutionalisation in the alliance. I mean, we've had OSMIN and before that, the ANZUS Council. We haven't had that sort of level of sophisticated integrated command and control like there's been in Korea, like there's been in Japan, like there has been in NATO. And as we develop more and more US force rotations through Australia, as we develop closer things, the fundamental question has to be how do you do the command and control? It may not look like it does in Korea or Japan or NATO, but it was, I think it has to look like something different to what we had. And the kind of ad hocery nature of doing this um, is not really fit for purpose anymore given the strategic circumstances um, that we're in. Of course, sovereignty is a key issue for Australia. We don't have US bases in Australia. We have places, we have joint facilities, and we have US rotational forces through Australia. And they remain, you know, the, the bases that they operate out of in Australia are very much Australian sovereign bases. And we have status of forces agreements and all of that type of stuff. And But we also know that an Australian sits as the deputy commander of US Army Forces Pacific and has done for, I think, going on, you know, more than a, far more than a decade. Um, and now we're looking at deputies in relation to those roles in the US Air Force and the US Navy in Indo-Pacific Command and a significant number of Americans now who are embedded into the Australian military situation and network um, as well. So we've got, you know, senior American officers in the um, Joint Deployable Force headquarters up in Brisbane with the Australians as well and that. So I think this has been evolutionary. I think now we're at this particular point with the DSR, with the new US NSS and NDS and the changing nature of the region, particularly with the AUKUS agreement as well and the announcement of the submarine rotational force in Western Australia, we probably should have a much more systematic look at this is my personal opinion on how we do that. I said, I don't think it will look like Korea or Japan or NATO. I mean, we have different requirements, particularly, say, in NATO with Article 5, but we've got to have a much more deeper discussion of particularly how it would look like to do joint shaping operations. And I think if we put the emphasis here, Mike, on this, how do we do these things in a coordinated shaping role, not was worried about how we do the respond part, but also how can we do things to be more proactive and more engaged and more joined up in the way that we do our, sh our shaping operations, say, in the South Pacific and in Southeast Asia in particular. And we know... South Pacific, for instance, we now also got the US Coast Guard doing patrols down into the South Pacific. We've got much more US aid and investment going on there. So it's really important that we coordinate those efforts and that we do that more effectively. And then when it comes down to the military doing, you know, maritime patrols in the region, domain awareness and all of this type of stuff, being more joined up and being more organised is really effective. And the best way to do that is have some form of command and control that allows us to, to be able to do that more effectively. Because in some areas, particularly in the maritime space, and we've just you know, had a report, well, we've got a report coming out next week on the maritime stuff in the quad. One of the issues is 
we're all the quad countries are all contributing to maritime domain awareness and sometimes we're stepping on each other's toes like we're working with countries and trying to deliver the same capability rather than trying to work together and coordinate that much better so we self-reinforce not walk all over the top of each other and i think that's also as we do greater integrated shaping and greater integrated statecraft together that's really important Pete, that was a, a, a completely appropriate and wonderful benediction to end this discussion on both highlighting how much work has been done in shaping and strengthening the coalition, but I think also laying down the gauntlet for how much continued coordination, refinement, and innovation needs to be done. And, and I think the note both you and Mike have hit on, on that critical pre-deterrent shaping critical domain, I think, is um, something that, again, there's some thinking going on here in the United States, but but this is one where conversations with coalition members out in the region is is going to be fundamental. I think we're, this is a final comment for me, but I, I, I sometimes in the U.S. get the feeling it's sort of unilateral U.S. policy, sprinkling allies and partners um, when we need to and have to, and, and making that shift to truly thinking and coordinating coalitionally will, I think, be the way that we're going to both shape and deter China. So I um, really appreciate your thoughts here. Appreciate all your work and giving us a, an hour of your time. It's been a great it's been discussion. Long, absolutely. You, you, just, uh, you just also gave yourself three new homework assignments. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's been great to talk to you, Jude. Mike, however, giving me homework assignments in his podcast is something means I might have to reflect if you ever ask me to come back on. Um, he'll now just walk from his end of the building down to mine to make sure that that's, uh, that's on my list of to-dos. Great discussion. Thanks, Great. guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.